Rachel Hampton, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And y'all, we've done it. We've made it through another week. I'm not going to lie. Every Monday, I question whether I'll make it. And every Saturday, I'm like, here I am, undefeated in the battle against the work week. As are y'all. Give it up for us. Let's give ourselves a little golf clap. You might notice that once again, I am on my own, pretending he's beside me. All alone, I walk with him till morning. That's a gift for y'all, lay Miz heads out there. I know you are out there. I hear you. I see you. But yes, Candace is still out there doing the investigative work of our generation. I'm hearing rumors that she has infiltrated the Bath and Body Works C-suite, though obviously we cannot confirm that information. Candace. If you're listening, we're all with you. Bring back the goods. The Country Apple Hand Sanitizer. In the meantime, we are back to basics, which is me using this show to complain about something and then somehow turning that complaint into a very informative episode. But actually, this time, it's not just me complaining because today's episode is a read receipt, properly pronounced. We got an email from Summer that reads, I would love it if you could discuss on the show why there seems to be a trend of people self-censoring a large number of words when writing on social media. I'm talking about writing S asterisk X instead of sex, R asterisk P-E or grape instead of rape, unalived instead of died by suicide. I even saw a travel blogger write words like S at sign F-E and D at sign N-G-R-O-U-S in an Instagram real caption, which is absolutely mind-boggling. I find it pretty troubling that the same thing seems to be happening on English language social media. And I'm wondering if this phenomenon of self-censorship could be an indicator of something bigger. Is it impacting Gen Z's ability to engage with or produce content that is political in nature? Are these algorithms deliberately suppressing the voices of women's rights activists, LGBTQ folks? And if so, shouldn't we be more concerned about this? That is a great question, Summer, and not just because it gets to one of my newer pet peeves, which is the slow cross-platform creep of language that is created on TikTok originally to subvert algorithm filtering. At this point, I think most of us are pretty familiar with the power of the all-seeing TikTok algorithm, not just to correctly peg that we're interested in, you know, dozens of meme videos about the Alabama brawl, but it's power to crack down on all sorts of content that the platform deems inappropriate, which is most usually content of a sexual or adult nature. We don't have time to get into how what TikTok deems sexual or adult or inappropriate is so wide ranging as to almost be comical. But what we do have time for is the way that TikTok users have developed their own language to get around these filters, a language that some are describing as algo speak. Some examples of this, besides the one that Summer mentioned, are spelling sex as S-E-G-G-S, describing suicide as someone unaliving themselves, referring to porn as corn and sex workers as accountants. And on one level, these words are extremely functional. They allow content to get made on TikTok that otherwise might get flagged for removal. 
But I can't help but ask what happens when that language becomes not just the norm on TikTok, but on all social media platforms. To help me answer that question, I called up two linguists who wrote a presentation on this very topic. Alexia Fawcett is a PhD candidate in linguistics at UC Santa Barbara, and Kendra Calhoun is an assistant professor of linguistic anthropology at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Their presentation, which is called They Edited Out Her Nip Knots, Linguistic Innovation as Textual Censorship Avoidance on TikTok, was honestly one of my favorite things I read this year. And both Kendra and Alexia very graciously agreed to come on the show. So after a short break, I'll be back with them talking all about AlgoSpeak. Hi, y'all. If you love our podcast, then please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. When you subscribe to Slate Plus, you get no ads on any Slate podcast, including your favorite one. In case you missed it, I see why am I. You will also be supporting the show. I see why am I would not be possible without the support of Slate Plus subscribers. You will also get bonus segments or episodes on shows like Slow Burn, Dear Prudence, Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Big Mood, Little Mood. And if you're lucky, I see why am I? Maybe one day, who could say? You will also get unlimited reading on the Slate website, which means you get access to every single article and advice column on Slate without ever hitting the paywall. To sign up, just visit slate.com slash ICYMI plus. That is slate.com slash ICYMI plus. And we're back with Alexia Fawcett, a PhD candidate in linguistics at UC Santa Barbara, and Kendra Calhoun, an assistant professor of linguistic anthropology at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. They worked on a presentation with one of the most compelling titles I've ever seen in an academic context. It is called, They Edited Out Her Nip Nops. Linguistic Innovation as Textual Censorship Avoidance on TikTok. Thank you so much for joining me, Alexia and Kendra. Thank you for having us. us. I'm so excited to talk about this topic that I feel like has just slowly infiltrated not just like our lives, but our daily lexicons. But before we kind of dive in, I usually ask all of our guests the same question, which is, what is your first internet memory? Well, I guess I should say my first introduction to the internet was getting it on a CD, right? AOL on a CD. And then I think the first thing that I like remember really are the E-bombs world videos, which are where you would find that 55, that end of the world one with, with I am the tired. That's a good one. I love hearing ones that I haven't encountered. Kendra, what about you? Um, I do remember the E-bombs world videos because I, I remember the 55 where there's like there's one line that's like, my IQ, 55, my girlfriend's age, 55. <laughs> it's just such a completely random video. But I think sort of similar to Alexia, my first memory sort of of the internet was my older sister actually like being on the computer all the time and just wondering like, what is she doing on there? And my dad complaining about like the bill and like she had a limited time for how long she could be on there. But I think for me, my most vivid like early internet memory was just like aim getting home after school getting online and chatting to my friends about nothing new because we just saw each other on the bus we just saw each other in class (laughs) 
but having to be like, oh, so-and-so said this on the bus and it was like drama and then having to set a new away message, letting everyone know I was going to go do my homework and then eat dinner and then I'd be back in approximately two hours. So like, don't worry, I'm not going to be gone for too long. Uh, I remember setting the most dramatic song lyrics as my away message. So people would be like, what's wrong? <laughs> so we're here today to talk about the concept of Ago Speak, which kind of broadly encapsulates the language that develops on platforms like TikTok and Instagram and YouTube, where content is largely moderated by algorithms and then by real people as a secondary step. And so before we kind of get into the specifics of this, I wanted to ask if you remember the kind of first time you really remember encountering this kind of language, either on TikTok or even like earlier platforms? I feel like it was probably like unalive is probably the word instead of dead or kill something in in that range. But Alexia got me on TikTok and like as linguists, right, we got on there and we were sort of generally noticing stuff about language happening. And we were like, oh, this is Mm -hmm. interesting. Let's keep track of some of this stuff. So we were just sort of like putting examples into this folder that we shared. But we were just noticing a lot of people are doing this sort of like avoiding certain words, censoring certain words. And then over time, we were like, this is like a thing. This is a big thing that's happening across this platform. Yeah, I think for me, the dollar bean is what put me over the edge. That was like, this is a thing. dollar Bean is very evocative. It doesn't really exist in any other context. I feel like AlgoSpeak is most closely associated with TikTok at this point because TikTok is so algorithm-driven, but this isn't the first time that this kind of language kind of existed. I'm thinking kind of of speak, which I think developed in the 1980s, but this isn't a new phenomenon, right? No. No, definitely not. So one of the things that we are trying to highlight in the research that we're doing is both the novelty of like how it's happening on TikTok, why it's happening on TikTok in these particular ways, but also highlighting that this is like one iteration of something that's been going on for a long time, both online, like early days of the internet, like LeetSpeak, sort of discussion forums, but also that it's sort of an online version of something that people did before the internet even existed, like playing with language, coming up with sort of code language, secret language, in-group community language. Um, There's lots of different names for it. I mean, linguists have been studying this sort of in-group language for decades, uh, if not longer. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you see a difference between those kind of earlier forms. I feel like the word I most closely associate with LeapSpeak is noob, which is spelled with two zeros instead of like EW or oh, but that kind of strikes me as more, I guess, slang than some of the terms that come up on TikTok. And so I guess I'm wondering if there's a difference you see between those kinds of language innovations and what's happening on TikTok. One difference you might be able to point to is what they're responding to in making this term, where this term has come from. So noob, I mean, I haven't looked into the history of noob, but you could say that it's one group of people saying another group of people like doesn't meet the standard, right? Or like they're newbies in a certain community. They don't know how it goes. A lot of the innovations on TikTok that we see are in response to something a little bit, maybe a little bit more sinister in that they're responding to either 
algorithmic like imposition of a certain belief or ideology uh, that marginalizes them. Maybe some of the things are a little bit more like risque in what they refer to uh, as opposed to noob, which on its surface seems not very harmful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to get into your presentation a bit, which I just really want to say I appreciate the fact that the tiny URL is tinyurl.com slash the dollar bean. I was like the commitment. <laughs> is so strong and is, of course, a reference to the kind of linguistic innovation that you're talking about. You said that you kind of noticed this as soon as you got on TikTok. At what point were you like, this is a thing I'm noticing online to this is a thing that I want to kind of like talk about and dissect in an academic context? Once we started seeing more and more examples, like some of it was seeing a lot of words come up over and over again or like different sort of censored forms for the same word. So we're seeing censored forms for things like sex or black or white um, or trans. And we were like, okay, there's, we're definitely seeing a pattern here. And then some of it was just the creativity of like the forms that people could come up with. So we were really interested both in the, like why people were censoring, right? It seemed like, you know, it was particularly people from uh, marginalized groups, right? Responding to, perceived or actual risk of like their content being um, flagged or shadow banned or their account being banned um, as well as sort of the, the mechanisms, like how are people actually changing the pronunciations, changing the spellings, what are the creative processes that they're doing to get to these other forms where if you have enough context or the right context, at least, right, you can still figure out what they're saying or what the original word was supposed to be. Um, but finding that balance between right, sort of circumventing the algorithm or, or sort of manual content moderation, but still being legible, still being the type of content that people want to engage with on TikTok. Um, so I think it was of our <laughs> many, many ideas that we had for things to study on TikTok related to language. This one came to the top really quickly. And then also because so many people on TikTok were commenting on it, we were seeing tweets about it, right? It was something that like, not just people who were on TikTok, but sort of the broader public was aware of. And so, yeah, we really wanted to see what we could glean by taking a, a sort of linguistic analysis lens to it. And I guess, what would you say was the kind of top billing of what you gleaned? Like, what was, was there anything you were surprised by as you kind of dove deeper into this issue? In some ways, it's surprising. In some ways, not. Um, sort of how we were saying before that it's kind of an, an online platform specific version of this language play that people do right from the time that we're kids. And the same pipeline is like learning pig Latin or making up languages with your friends, right? And so I think it's striking sort of when we started to lay it out, we're like, oh, these are, they're really following like the rules of English and using these processes that we do in all these other contexts. But the end result is so creative and it feels so novel that it, it seems like it should be like, oh, it's just this completely like off the wall kind of stuff. And then when you really break it down into linguistic rules, you're like, oh no, they're following this particular sound pattern rule that we have in English about where syllable stress goes or what syllables can rhyme with each other or what consonants can occur in a row at the beginning of a word. And so it, it really shows how simultaneously systematic and flexible language can be, which as linguists isn't surprising. I We just think it's exciting, but I think yeah. the, the difference between maybe first impression and then kind of the what's actually happening when you dig into it. 
That makes a lot of sense. And I'm going to read a bit from your presentation that I think follows up on what you're saying, which is, quote, when platforms attempt to exert algorithmic control over users, users will innovate ways to maintain control of their content. Therefore, in order to avoid what some call being guidelined, many TikTok users have found creative ways to circumvent lexical items that may be flagged for censorship. I spend a lot of time on TikTok, so I'm very familiar with the kind of words you're talking about. The dollar bean, which is a reference to the word lesbian, unalive, which is a reference to kill. But for some of our listeners who don't spend much time on TikTok, could you take me through some of the examples you cite in your presentation or even just like your favorite examples of these and the linguistic rules that they're following? So you did already mention one, which was the dollar bean, which it, for those who have, are not seeing it out in front of them, it comes from the same sort of practice of using non-letters um, to replace similar looking letters in, in some sort of word. So le dollar bean comes from L-E, a dollar sign instead of an S, and then B-E-A-N instead of B-I-A-N. So the reason that it became le dollar bean, even though when you look at it and you're familiar with this process of using non-letters for letters, you would probably just still read it as lesbian. But instead, someone actually put it into the, the text-to-speech function on TikTok so something was written out as L-E dollar sign B-E-A-N, and it got read out loud in this computer voice as Le Dollar Bean, which people really loved and just like grabbed onto and then continued to use it and even wrote it out as L-E-D-O-L-L-A-R, like dollar bean, right? So it's like undergoing these changes over and over again, depending on the different things at play. So there's things like that where you have something that's sort of common online. We're using non-letters to replace letters, um, but then interacting with these functions of TikTok, specifically of text-to-speech, which are changing the way that you wouldn't really expect. Like there's no reason that one would expect this to become the dollar bean if you were just reading the word or just hearing the word, right? So there's some interactions with technology that happen. One of the strategies that people can use is just completely replacing a word with something that it seems to be unrelated, um, but might have some similarity meaning-wise or um, maybe is actually the opposite meaning-wise. So something like eight and a half by 11s for white people, because eight and a half by 11 as like a sheet of paper is yeah. something that is white. So it has this sort of meaning, similarity of meaning in that it's whiteness, but it stands in for white people. Another favorite is palm-colored. So talking about the inside of one's, one's hand being white or whiter in color, so palm-colored people as white people, that even getting extended to using gestures that talk about white people as just holding up one, like someone's palm to the camera in TikTok, which is something that's available on TikTok that isn't available on Twitter, for example. Like you can't put your palm up to a video on Twitter, um, but you can on TikTok because it's there's video, it's a visual medium. And then it gets, you know, gets into these different modalities, not just writing, but also gestures. And some people might not even say palm colored people while they hold up their palm, right? They might just hold up a palm. And that is the whole stand in for the word white people. <laughs> yeah, right. Even that one sort of circled back to sort of text sort of image. But then if you know the palm colored people reference, if someone just uses the palm emoji, right, then that becomes a sort of textual stand-in for white people as well. So this one is 
is fun because it, you see it in so many different versions and um, the sort of white object for white person or white people has been used in a lot of different ways. Yeah, the kind of play on like in-group versus out-group and how TikTok just expands the in-group so far, I guess, because I mean, as a Black person, I'm kind of used to the ways that Black people come up with to describe white people in mixed company. But it's so interesting seeing the way that expands beyond just like your immediate circle. It makes me want to ask if linguistic innovation like this happens often in response to censorship. Yeah, I think particularly the examples that we've seen around race. Most common I've seen is white and black. Um, I can't think of any examples where like the word race was censored, but there might be some out there. We have racist being expelled differently, like Ray, R-A-Y-C-E-S-T instead of R-A-C-I-S-T. You know, we make the connection to sort of different belief systems around race. So people who believe that just talking about race right, is racist in itself, right? The way we achieve racial harmony is by not talking about race. You know, there have been different sociological studies and stuff done showing that white people are more sensitive to discussions of race, and particularly discussions of whiteness, than people of color are to discussions about race or about blackness. And so, like we were just saying, a lot of examples of how people find ways of avoiding or sort of minimizing the extent to which they actually just say the word white or white people or whiteness And that obviously is a sort of racial power dynamic that is not unique to TikTok, but something that is, you know, exists within wider society. But there's also this in-group, out-group, this sort of, I don't know, camaraderie, this sort of sense of like, this is one small moment of being able to subvert that sort of racial power dynamic, right? It's like, we can laugh at whiteness in a way that is both frivolous, but important, right? If you spend your day to day thinking about, oh, I got to make sure that I don't offend a white person, because who knows what will happen to like my, my body, my livelihood, right? Having to navigate that, if you can just take a moment and be like, I'm going to talk about white people in this silly way and make myself laugh Mm -hmm. and make a couple other people laugh. And there aren't really serious repercussions, but I'm still going to take a moment, provide myself a little bit of layer of protection or plausible deniability, right? So I think, you know, that's part of when we say we're interested in both the sort of why and the how, the sort of linguistic mechanisms is thinking about what power dynamics within the TikTok platform, right? Like who has control or makes decisions about what the guidelines are, what counts as quote unquote offensive or, you know, flaggable content, and how that's tied to ideas around race and gender and sexuality and class um, that exist outside of the platform, you know, the sociopolitical context that TikTok and these other platforms exist in, and that all the people who are creating content exist in. So a lot of the examples we have around race, I think, at least initially, were mostly from Black creators and other creators of color. Um, But we did notice as time went on, more white creators starting to use some of these playful terms Mm. for whiteness. Um, And that was when we were starting to pick up on, it's not just about censorship anymore or for some people, but rather wanting to participate in this sort of playfulness, this linguistic creativity that obviously garners a lot of attention and gets people's views and and comments and engagement on TikTok. Um, So different motivations for why people do it, a perceived sort of threat or censorship and actual 
risk of censorship or sort of playing into uh, this sort of playful, sort of low stakes kind of phenomenon. And sometimes it's a combination of those three, not necessarily mutually exclusive. And that line between the actual threat of censorship, which is very real, and the perceived risk of censorship is one that I'm really interested in exploring. But first, we need to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to try to answer Summer's question that started off this whole episode. And we're back with Kendra Calhoun, Alexia Fawcett. One of the reasons we decided to do this episode, besides the fact that I just didn't get to take as many linguistics classes in college as I wanted, is that one of our listeners wrote in with a question that I wanted to pose to you two. Because it's a question that comes up when the kind of TikTok-specific language we're talking about makes its way outside of the contained environment of TikTok. So the question reads... There seems to be a trend of people self-censoring a large number of words when writing on social media. I'm talking about writing S apostrophe X instead of sex, R asterisk PE or grape instead of rape. I even saw a travel blogger write words like safe and dangerous with the at sign instead of the A, which is absolutely mind boggling. Our listener goes on to say, I find it pretty troubling that the same thing seems to be happening on English language social media. And I'm wondering if this phenomenon of self-censorship could be an indicator of something bigger. Is it impacting Gen Z's ability to engage with or produce content that is political in nature? And so I wanted to kind of pose that question to y'all. If you think that this kind of softening of words in a way could mean anything bigger, or if it's kind of that kind of fear is just an outshoot of the fear that happens when language changes. That's a great question. In response to the part of the question asking if it might impact people's ability to sort of have more serious conversations around these sociopolitical issues, it's entirely possible. I mean, the short answer is language matters, right? That's why people care so much about how we phrase things. That's why politicians are so careful. I feel like one area this comes up with a lot is the idea of like homeless versus unhoused versus experiencing homelessness, right? You know, people care a lot about the terminology, Right. And then some people are like, well, it's just words. What actually matters is the policy and getting people resources. And right. When you're talking about something like sexual assault and you're saying grape, right. Some people might be like, Mm -hmm. I can't take this seriously because it, it, it always feels like it's bordering on a joke. So I think some of it might depend on like which words people use. It might depend on if it's written versus if they're hearing it. In some contexts, the self-censorship is not really necessary. And so it, it comes off as playful. I think that's definitely a possibility of like, if people feel like, oh, this is an appropriate way to talk about this very serious issue, it might actually take away some of the heaviness, the seriousness, the importance of what it is that, that people are trying to discuss. At the same time, too, I'm thinking about how people are constantly, young people are constantly getting the message that these are things that deserve to be censored. Maybe that is going to affect them and have them thinking like, oh, these things are bad. And there's like a an ideology there that's present that if they hadn't been censored, maybe people would feel more comfortable talking about. It's a really kind of interesting question. And I think it's the one that's been really present in my mind, because on some level, I find a little bit of it annoying, like especially when it makes its way outside of TikTok, the using of corn instead of porn or, you know, accountant instead of sex worker. When that kind of censorship becomes not necessary or 
I feel like y'all have mentioned that it's happening in response to kind of a perceived censorship instead of an actual censorship. I feel like sometimes it goes like a step too far in a way. And I think that's where some of the hesitation comes from. But I'm wondering how y'all feel about that. Like the censoring of words like safe and dangerous, which don't really seem like things that anyone is really looking for. Yeah, I mean, some people might, depending on sort of where their point of entry is, might just see it as this is a way that people write and speak online, similar to what people think of as like millennial internet speak, right? Like doggo and pupper Mm. and things like that, right? (laughs) So again, those didn't start out as censored words, but when people see that, they're just like, oh yeah, that's just how millennials talked on the internet. So some people might Mm -hmm. say, oh, this is just how people write certain words on the internet now. I could even see like safe and dangerous, not that they need to be censored, but that those are words that you use in relation to things like experiencing violence or breaking laws, right? So they're in some way connected to the type of content that might be censored depending on what someone's talking about. But those words in and of themselves, like, don't necessarily put someone at risk for censorship. So in that sense, it could be maybe not even playful is the right word, but they're just like, it's just a thing that they've seen people do. And so they do it too. The at for A is very common. It's been such a longstanding thing and people are familiar with it from different contexts. It's a video of a white guy and the caption is like, when your black friends are coming over for dinner and he uses the at sign for black. But the whole point of the joke is just that white people don't use spices. So he like opens the cabinet and all that's in there is salt and pepper. And he's like, Oh no. (laughs) And like, that's the whole joke of the video. Like there's not really any need to sort of quote unquote censor the word black. And some people, I remember some people in the comments were like, why did you do that? Like, why did you spell it like that? I've also seen some people on TikTok making videos, right, you know, duetting or stitching in some way responding to videos being like, can we please stop this? It is not necessary at this point. It's overkill. It's too much. Sometimes I get confused, right? Like it's, you know, people feel like it's gone too far. I mean, people, including me, definitely have really, really strong feelings about this, especially when this kind of language escapes TikTok, but also because so many of the replacements and the things that are being replaced end up the only word I can really think of is childish just because of like the fact that you're softening language in a way like a, the corn instead of porn thing is really, I think what gets me a lot, but something that came up in your presentation and that also comes up in discussion a lot is that a lot of the people who are coming up with these terms are marginalized. I mean, it's sex workers. It is people who have experienced sexual assault and rape who have had their videos taken down and are trying to find ways to talk about it. Like La Dollar Bean is funny, but also speaks to a real concern that just talking about being a lesbian will get your video taken down. I was reading an article about a TikToker who's was reading Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail and had to do the wildest gymnastics just to write Ku Klux Klanner and white moderate. Is this kind of algo speak and the circumstances that give rise to it, which is this big black box of an algorithm, a net good or a net bad? I think as a linguist, it's net good and fun when you get to use these examples as like, look what people can do with language, look at the kinds of um, like meta awareness that people have about language and what is possible beyond like within the rules that you wouldn't have even thought of otherwise. I think that the takeaway there is something that is positive in that people can do these things with language and people who are not experts in language can do them as well. 
and if you're someone who's into humor, some of these things can be fun and silly and, you know, you get to have a good time. In terms of like, is this good for society? I don't know that I can say yes or no. I think the fact that if moderation online continues to be something that is lacking nuance, then this is definitely a net evil, right? There's no way that can people can continue to be active online and continue their lives and talk about experiences freely in their own way if there's not ways of keeping harmful things in check, but also noticing what is harmful is dependent on where you are, who you are, who you're with, who you're talking to. And these are things that are a little bit difficult to do computationally. And it's also unfair to do to people. I think in a lot of cases, you'll hear about people who have have the job of doing content moderation, being subjected to seeing some really awful things and what that does to their mental health. So moderation online, I think in the end is always going to end up in some sort of bad place because it's just, we are not equipped to do so and be nuanced about it. I'll add that one positive, I guess, takeaway from this is that TikTok as a platform sort of increased people's general awareness of how much of our experience as social media users platforms control and the ways that algorithms really impact our social media experience. But if you think about a platform like Instagram or Twitter, back in the heydays when it was just a chronological feed of stuff posted by who you followed, you were just like, okay, the way I use this app is right? I follow these people and then I open Instagram and I'm like, here's a post from my friend four hours ago. Here's a post from my friend three hours ago. And you just, you know, work your way down. And then if you want to look up something different, you go and you search and then you find it, right? Whereas now the whole point of TikTok is it doesn't really matter who you follow. You open your, your for you page and you never know what you're going to get. And there was this increased awareness of like, oh, well, okay, I follow these people and I'm not seeing them, but I'm seeing people that they follow. Or I'm seeing this post because I follow this person and they liked that post or they commented on it and now it's showing up on my For You page. Or I made a post, right, with this word in it and it's I think I got shadow banned. So now let me do this test, right? So some of it was like real concrete and some of it has been people's sort of educated guesses about how the TikTok algorithm works in terms of how it populates your For You page, but also how content gets moderated. And I think... That, right, that that greater awareness of how much algorithms determine and the fact that there are people who create these algorithms, but also who um, can, you know, change how the algorithms operate. I think that is something positive, even though in some ways it had to come out of this kind of negative experience from a lot of users, but that people are now cognizant of how much of our online sort of behavior and actions are monitored and, and observed and taken into account and then sort of fed back to us in terms of uh, the type of content that we see. We've gotten through this entire interview and I haven't even asked y'all how you feel about the term algo speak in general, like as linguists. I realized I've been using it this entire interview and just didn't ask. <laughs> well, Kendra and I might have a little bit of like a personal beef with <laughs> algo speak. We like to use the term linguistic self-censorship because we feel it's like a bit of a a wider umbrella that captures the whole phenomenon versus just people speaking in a way with the algorithm in mind. It also, I think with the linguistic self-censorship, is a bit more clear to 
an outsider what exactly that might mean. If you're not familiar with other forms that are similar, like leet speak or new speak or double speak or whatever it is, like if you're not familiar with those terms, you could figure out what linguistic self-censorship might mean just from the term. But also because a lot of what people are doing, like we've mentioned a couple of times, is not just censoring themselves in terms of the algorithm, but doing it for this more like larger linguistic goal of language play, being creative, being funny, doing all those things. So that's why we prefer linguistic self-censorship, but uh, we understand why algo speak is the way it is. There's a lot of terms where if you know what's happening and you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, algo, algorithm, speak speak. But again, as linguists, we're going to like nitpick this kind of stuff. And yeah, the fact that some of it doesn't really have anything to do with the algorithm. Um, the fact that some of it is not spoken, a lot of it is written. Some of it, as we're interested in, has to do with right gesture and the body. Um, so not speaking or writing. So even in our you know, term of linguistic self-censorship, right? You know, at least people can say linguistic, okay, this is about language, you're censoring the self, right? You can sort of get there and then you know, a, a sort of expand on, okay, in addition, the language could be spoken or written, but then in addition to that, we can think about how people use the body in addition to writing and speaking. All right, that's the show. We'll be back in your feed on Wednesday, so please subscribe. It is the best way to never miss an episode, the best way to never miss a linguistic innovation. Please leave a rating and review on Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod, which is also where you can DM us your questions like, what is a nip-nop? And you can also always drop us a note at ICYMI at slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Sarah Spragley-Ricks, Candice Lim, and me, Rachel Hampton. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's vice president of audio. See you online, or not.